0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an award-winning show that inspires, educates, and empowers patients, survivors, and caregivers to live well with cancer.
1: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, a program that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, You're getting a team of licensed professionals (coughs) providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. On today's show, we're going to talk about making treatment decisions when you or a loved one has been diagnosed with an advanced cancer. I've been thinking a lot about today's topic as I've been helping navigate my family's care. And there are a lot of issues that a person has to navigate, financial concerns, legal documents, communicating with the care team, and the emotions that come with caring for a loved one with an advanced cancer uh, diagnosis. So I am thrilled to have with us today Dr. B.J. Miller, who's going to help us have a thoughtful and meaningful conversation about this topic. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller is a longtime hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He currently sees patients and families via telehealth through Metal Health, a company he co-founded with the aim to provide personalized, holistic consultations for any patient or caregiver who needs help navigating the practical, emotional, and existential issues that come with serious illness and disability. Dr. Miller has worked in all settings of care, hospital, clinic, residential, and home. His TED Talk has been viewed over 15 million times, and he speaks internationally on themes of illness, death, and loss. Welcome to the show,
2: Dr. Miller. (laughs) Thank you, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So, when I started thinking about a guest for this episode, several of my colleagues encouraged me to find a palliative care expert. You specialize in both palliative and hospice care. So could you explain those two areas of medicine for our listeners?
2: Mm. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. It is so weirdly confusing. They are deeply related, and they're a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So let's see. We could spend a long time kind of the history of this, but let me see if I can do it quickly. Let me start let me start by actually answering your question, my friend. So both hospice and palliative care are concerned with your quality of life. Whether or not your situation is curable, fixable, changeable is relative. It's important, of course, but it's not what drives our work. Our dri- What our- drives our work is you being real with whatever you got going on and that you feel loved and supported and that you're not suffering any more than you need to. You know, So that's our job, whether it's in hospice or palliative care, is to t- tend to your quality of life. And, and as we both know, our quality of life has a lot to do with how our friends and families are doing too. So we, we look at the whole person and that includes their social circles too. So we often end up taking care of families as much as a patient per se. So that's the sort of overview of each, both hospice and palliative care have that in common. And in fact, since 2006, the field is officially called, it's a medical subspecialty, it's called hospice and palliative medicine. So they're they're part of the same field, and they have the same aims. Where they get a little different is hospice is a kind of palliative care, you could say, that's reserved for the final months of life. This way it does, it's not focused on death. Either way, we're still talking about living until we die. Um, but it really is focused in the final months of life. We qualify for hospice when someone says we have six months or less to live, as a general rule of thumb. And sometimes we can extend that for a year or more, depending on the situation. Um, so that's hospice. Whereas palliative care, there is no time limit. Um, you know, as we know, people can live for many, many years with cancer and other diagnoses. So we want to support folks over the entirety of that arc, from diagnosis until the end, uh, and so that means sometimes in palliative care we get to work with people for many many years. There is no time limit. Um, so palliative care is really is wonderful when you are getting actively actively treating your cancer. You can also get palliative care alongside as this extra layer of support, um, and then when the end is coming, and when you're no longer interested in treatments or they're no longer working. Then you can segue into hospice, and hospice is the way to get the most services into your home. Uh, so anyway there's there's a lot of there's so many details in here, but does that make a little bit of sense that? That
1: makes so much sense, and I'm so happy that um, you took the time to clarify that for our listeners. There is a lot of confusion, um, mm-hmm. melding, misunderstanding, um, missed opportunities exactly. and um, so I'm, I just want you to know we're going to come back to those two specialties later in the show and take a really (laughs) nice, deep um, and thoughtful dive so (laughs) that folks really understand um, how those two medical specialties, or you just said they've been merged into one, but how they can uh, contribute to the cancer care that they are receiving. Um, So where I'd like to start our conversation is really what does what does it mean to be diagnosed with an advanced cancer? I think a lot of people hear that and they immediately think it's a terminal diagnosis. Is that actually the case? Is an advanced cancer always terminal?
2: In short, no. Let's just be clear. We're here as language goes, and especially medical language, it gets really confusing. So oftentimes advanced cancers imply that they are not curable, which implies that someday they will end your life. So it's often the case that advanced cancers are are a part of a chronic illness, which leads ultimately to death, whether that's in a week or a year or a decade, it's a different question. Um, But technically speaking, the way many of us use that phrase, advanced cancer, it's a little bit like another phrase you'll hear a lot in palliative care circles, which is "serious illness." Well, you know, who, who's to say what, what what constitutes a serious illness, and when is an illness advanced? So these are vague terms, but they have a sort of vernacular within healthcare. Um, but back to your question, you no. Know, if someone says, "Hey, you know, Natalie, I'm so sorry. Looks like your cancer has advanced." That generally would mean that it's it sort of implies metastasis, that it's moved. And metastasis generally oftentimes implies terminal illness. But I tell you what, these, these rules of thumb are changing as new mm. treatments come online and people are able to manage what is technically an advanced cancer. Like, for example, stage four cancer would be an advanced cancer. But many people, depending on the cancer type, depending on the person, can live for many, many years with an advanced cancer. So it gets really kind of confusing. So one takeaway is when you hear your doctor or anyone else use a phrase like this, I would just say, what do you mean, doctor, by that phrase? Help me understand.
1: Well, and that's where I wanted to go next with this conversation, actually, um, is you know when somebody receives that, um, that news that they're uh, mm-hmm. now looking at an advanced cancer what do you think they should do first it looks like you're saying the first thing a person should do is say oh, what does that mean mm-hmm. um, and and how can they begin to reorient themselves to this new reality this new phase that they're in
2: beautiful question hell yeah so first and foremost i i can't say it enough and it's so funny how we get in front of doctors. Sometimes doctors are so dang busy, and they may not be listening, or their head's in a computer, or who knows what. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this. We can get into the healthcare system and, and critique of it, absolutely. So, But the busyness of doctors, and then oftentimes, too, there's a funny – there can be this um, – Oftentimes we'll put doctors on pedestals and we feel embarrassed to ask them questions. So we don't want to take their time or something like this. It's just that I see it again and again, which is so interesting because we doctors are here to serve you patients. That's a whole, that's a purpose. So all that is to say, please, this is a big old invitation. When your doctor says something like that, before your head starts spinning around in circles, get a good, clear sense of what they mean. What are they telling you? Does advanced cancer mean there are no more treatments? Does this mean that I'm going to die from this illness, uh, etc.? cetera? Uh, so just want to hammer home your first really important point. Just ask. They are there for you. And if they give you any sort of grief or they make you feel like this, they're too busy, well, push back. <laughs> we can talk about how to do that. Um, so first, back to your question about orienting. Yes, get a handle on what the heck they're telling you. It is amazing to me that a lot of people, I think I saw data, something like 40% of people who have terminal Illness, terminal cancer diagnosis, don't know that it's terminal. Forty percent. If I'm remembering the data correctly, if I'm off, it's not by much. It's, it's an enormous no. number, um, and so people are walking around with uh, terminal illness that they don't even realize is terminal, which is really important because it imp- like it changes your attitude and your affect and how you spend your time. So. Um, so this lack of clarity is very, very common. You may be overstressing or in a sense understressing, depending on how you're interpreting these questions or these these comments um so beyond sort of orienting yourself and figuring out what the heck they're trying to tell you and what the implications of that are, I would say, you know you might as your situation shifts, your approach to the situation might need to shift. You know, if there's a chance that that my illness is curable, well, then that begs a certain kind of fighting spirit and pushing and sometimes kind of holding your breath to get through. But if I know that this thing isn't going away, that my job is, in fact, to learn to live with it, well, that begs a kind of a different attitude, a different affect. You know, if if a thief is coming into your house and you can scare him off or whatever, great. But if that thief is just basically moving in and just sitting in your well, you you know, for your own sanity, you should probably find a way to a different relationship with this thing this thing that ain't moving. Mm. So that's one example of how it can shift. And you are invited to change your mind and your approach to your own illness over time. In fact, it's generally a healthy thing to do.
1: So we're we're coming up to our first break. Wow, and that was fast. I know, right? It like blink of an eye and I'm here and I'm like, do we actually have time for this question? So I think I'm going to ask the question and when yeah. we come back from break, we'll really take a closer look at it. Uh, but I think this is really important uh, because it's the beginning of, um, of a person, a, a family, a friend, a group, you know, the impacted people's experience. Um, mm-hmm. Once a patient and their caregiver have that clarity about the diagnosis. Um it seems to me that there's a fundamental conversation that's got to happen where a patient is able to articulate their goals, their wishes, their preferences. <laughs> you were just referring to all of that when you were talking about reorienting yourself. And these conversations are so important because they are going to inform the treatment recommendations that come from the healthcare team. Um, they are going to appear in legal and binding documents that should be prepared as part of this um, process. and also, you know what gets communicated to friends and family who are trying to be helpful and contribute positively in any way that they can. I know in my life, I've tried to have some of these conversations, particularly with my aging parents, mm. and uh it it has been hard and there have been mm. a lot of roadblocks. Uh, I really want to take some time to think about what do listeners need to consider? What do they need to be thinking about? What do they need to be talking about um, as part of this process of being able to really lay down um, their wishes, their preferences, how, you know, mm-hmm. what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So um, you're going to have a few minutes to think about this during the break. <laughs> and we'll come back on the other side to talk about that. Um Like I said, it's going to be quick though. So we're going to be right back and we're going to continue this really, really good conversation with Dr. Miller uh, about treatment decision-making. Today's episode is brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb. We'll be right back after a short break.
3: a global network of education and hope.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health &
0: Wellness. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Natalie Castelli Today, we're talking about making treatment decisions for an advanced cancer diagnosis. With us to help us look at the different emotional and practical aspects of this is Dr. B.J. Miller. Dr. Miller is a longtime hospice and palliative medicine physician and educator. He currently sees patients and families via telehealth through Metal Health, a company he co-founded. I'm going to pick us up right where we left off before Mm -hmm. the break, which was um, really taking our time and looking at What a patient um, should be thinking about as they prepare to communicate with their caregiver and their healthcare team, their friends and their families, what's important to them in terms of their their treatment for an advanced cancer. We talked about reorienting yourself when you get that first news. Um, This is, I think, what comes next and sort of lays the foundation for at least what is the beginning of what's to come.
2: Well, so let's see if we can break this down a little bit. So one is to say, this is subjective stuff. So there aren't a lot of right answers. The right answer does, we need to live with these decisions we're making. And so the right answer is very personal. Um, But, you know, it needs to be framed within some sort of realism. And that's why it's so important to orient to the diagnosis itself not that you should be a prisoner of the diagnosis and there are outliers we you know the books may tell us we have 3 years to live and we may go 10 or or the books may say we have 3 years to live and we will 3 months so this is the there's science on this but a lot of people are surprised at how unclear some of the science is and how um, different uh, one person to the next uh, can play how these things play out can be very different one person to the next. So, let's be clear: there is no real right or wrong answer here. And also, there's these overlays. You know, communication is a big and difficult subject all the time. We're probably all miscommunicating with each other all, all the time. Um, it's difficult. And then you throw in fear and a lot of difficult anxi- anxieties and confusion and medical speak that doesn't is not clear. To her. And all of a sudden, we are spinning in circles and being asked to make enormously consequential decisions from a very confused state. So just to name that, um, so that we give ourselves a little room. It's often true, by the way, Natalie, that you may be asked to make a decision um, about treatment or no treatment or whatever. Um, And it may be posed to you as a pretty urgent decision, but make sure you ask, get pushback there because oftentimes you don't need to make the decision today. And when you're spinning around in circles, it's oftentimes not a great time to make big decisions. So one is to take a breath, ask, is this urgent now or can we talk about this over time? Get some sense of acuity, how acutely urgent is the situation? If there is time to make the decision, I suggest you take it because, again, these things are too tricky and they're trade-offs in all directions. So give yourself some time if you can. Uh, And then another point here is just to say, like you're pointing out with your parents, bless them, you know, like – I can't get my parents to talk about these things either. And this is my career. I make a living at. They love my work, but they won't participate in it. It's, really, <laughs> it's weird. So it's all fine. Okay. This is just big stuff. And we each have our own way of living with these big truths. So, okay. So now within that big sort of openness and let's, let's de-shame this um, a little bit. I think, you know, one of the things that happens all the time is patients may have an idea of how they want to live. Uh, of what they want to do with treatments but families sometimes can't hear it because sometimes like electing no treatment for example oftentimes sounds like quitting or giving up and sometimes we use that language which really makes it more confusing and puts mm. this judgment on top of it so if you're feeling a lot of judgment underneath these push back there feel that and, and and really you know this is where it pays to be very very aware as you're going through it and then as you know with like sometimes people, they're afraid if they say something that it'll happen. So there's a lot of superstition around these things. This is why I think you and I, hopefully, we know our parents well. No matter what they're going to tell us, sometimes we, as caregivers or as uh, as providers ourselves, we have a sense of what someone wants, and even if they won't say it out loud, there's a lot of room for intuition here and nonverbal communication. So when my mom was saying, yeah, more treatment, more treatment, but she can't look me in the eye when she says it and she's weeping in between sentences, I know something else is going on there. Mom, are you, are you electing more treatment because I, you think I want you to? Or are you afraid to let me down? You know, trying to open that conversation up, read the emotions in the room. So I don't know if this is helpful, Natalie, because it's so broad, but am I making some sense so far here? We can yeah. talk further.
1: Yeah. um, I'd like to take a moment to look at the, you mentioned Mm -hmm. trade-offs. Can you talk a little bit more about what those trade-offs could be? Yeah.
2: So, yeah, everything is, I wanted to put us in a sort of a relative frame of mind, electing further treatment or experimental treatment may give you reason to hope for a different outcome and may be invigorating to participate in science um, but very often, more treatment means more time in a hospital, more time not feeling well. You know, very often we're responding to the treatments; our bodies are reacting to the treatments as much as to the cancer. So, electing more treatment might mean more nausea, more pain, or more fatigue. You know, and if what's most important to you, Natalie, is to live every minute as long as you can possibly live and quality of life is less important to you, well then okay, more treatment let's just go as far as we can with pushing back on the disease but most of us have some our desire to live longer is is in some ways carved by a counterpoint of living well, being with the people we love, feeling up to even participating in a conversation etc. Being where we love to be, like home for example, so this this your own your, your own dynamic each of us should have a some sense of what we're willing to live with and what we really uh, won't live without and some dynamic between quantity and quality of life is very helpful to have in mind and there are trade-offs in all directions
1: so when a patient is still able to make decisions for themselves mm-hmm. how can how can caregivers be supportive what role can they play in the process
2: Well, caregivers, so it is, depending on the situation, um, a lot of the job can can oftentimes be just bearing witness, you know, not running away, being there with mom, dad, whoever, seeing what they're living with. uh, Bearing witness is an enormously powerful tool and doesn't mean you have to do anything. Mm. But maybe you and I both know in our lives, it feels really good to be seen, you know, and heard, especially when we're going through tough things that others might not understand so as caregivers be careful your projections you may not really know how to you may not be empathy may only get you so far you may not know how it feels to be another person's shoes and that goes both directions by the way so giving each other lots of benefit of the doubt giving each other the grace and respect to have your own experiences um so that's a big one bearing witness holding space for your loved one um another big task We're thinking general here would be it's something of an advocate. As we were saying earlier, the doctor visits can be so rushed, so much going on. And when we're stressed out and feeling like, you know, feeling junky, it may be hard to listen. So sometimes as caregivers, we're the outboard ears, eyes and ears, and paying attention on behalf of that person. Pushing back when the doctor doesn't answer a question. Say, hey, doc, I, I really, we really need to talk about blah, blah, blah. So advocating and pushing the health team to make sure your issues are being addressed. That's a big part of caregiving. Uh, tending to the home, making sure that life is as otherwise as safe and clean and clear cut as possible. It can be tasks, doing chores, can be helped with uh, activities of daily living like bathing, et cetera. So, there's a range of practical and emotional uh, bits that go into this job. But I'll say one more thing, Natalie, is another piece of your job as caregiver is to really tend to yourself. It can't be said enough. You, If you're running on fumes, yes, you're there for this person you care about, um, ostensibly, um, or there out of some sense of duty. But you can't, it's one thing to caregive for a couple of weeks and hold your breath and get someone over a hump. But some of the things we're talking about play on for a long period of time. And you can't just hold your breath. You can't just put your own life on hold. And you have to find some way to tend to yourself in this mix, too. It's so much easier said than done, but it needs to be said.
1: So... Um we're not too far from our next break and I'm going to want to take a closer <laughs> look with you. I know right already. <laughs> um about caregivers because I think what you've raised is extremely um extremely important and I've got some interesting statistics to share with you about mm-hmm. that. Um in looking at an advanced cancer diagnosis, um the treatment may change over time over the course of the the mm-hmm. disease. Um Could you touch on a couple of what things that could cause those changes, but also in thinking about caregivers, what are things that they can um, try to assess in their loved ones, things that they can look out for to see if perhaps their loved ones um, changed their mindset about how they want to um, Mm -hmm. continue to deal with their treatment, but maybe hasn't necessarily said anything about that?
2: Mm-hmm. Such an important point here, and back to some of your earlier questions along the arc of all the decisions that need to be made, and given all the trade-offs uh, uh, endemic to almost all of these decisions, I would say not only is it okay to allow your your mind to change over time, but I probably it's probably a very healthy thing. These how I feel right now about living my life, if I were to need to do some big treatment, you know, or whatever, or go through something right now I'm up to it. But over time, if I'm depleted, wearing thin, and remove some of the things that I really care about. You no, know, my desire to pursue treatment might shift. And that's totally okay. Again, the, the idea here is to be constantly this sort of touching into the reality on the ground, the reality inside of you and, and your feelings about it all. And that is a dynamic stew that's changing all the time. So just to say, let's bless the notion of changing your mind over time, and that's okay. That's not being wishy-washy or whatever else. So um, one thing, the other part of your question here is, as a caregiver or as anybody in this mix, a question that comes up and it's very useful is: Is this serving you? You know, is this uh, are the path we're on, Mom? Is this, you know, is this really where you want to be now? I know it was a month or two ago, but how about now? Is this still serving you? And I know it looks hard and we'll keep going if that's what you want to do. But is this really serving you now? And sometimes that question, they can answer that question to tell us. Sometimes you're using your gut instinct about watching what's going on in this person who may be increasingly in shambles and in a sense, isolating or shutting down. And you can see with your own two eyes if the plan is no longer serving the person. Um, so you can try to have I would encourage you to coax a conversation there but um, you also just um, this is where intuition and your gut sense are very important as well so
1: well that is our cue we're going to take a very short break enough for you to you know clear the throat Um, but I want our listeners to not go away because we still have so much to learn from you this is frankly speaking about cancer today's episode is brought to you by Bristol Myers Squibb and we will be right back
4: Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt and enter the code Magnolia B, or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org.
2: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphitech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities. Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azai, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Your life, your health, your network. You're
4: listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Natalie Castelli, and we've been talking about making treatment decisions when you or your loved one has been diagnosed with an advanced cancer. I'm joined by Dr. B.J. Miller. Dr. Miller is an established thought leader in the area of serious illness, end-of-life issues, and death. Um, I just want to continue on um, caregivers for a few more moments Mm -hmm. and talk about the shift that happens or that can happen when uh, a patient may no longer be able to make treatment decisions for themselves. Um, You've been a physician for like two decades. You've Mm canceled thousands of family members and patients. Um, Speaking from that experience, what advice or insights can you share with caregivers when they take on the full role of making those treatment decisions, um, as well as the emotions that come with watching your loved one's condition advance to a place where you're now taking over that responsibility for them.
2: Yeah, it's a very important, all, everything you bring up, Natalie, is really key, it's good stuff. So, yeah, so there is, so let's just, some of the language around this. So, um, in your advanced directive, for example, or living will, one of the most important things you would ever do in this paperwork is to name your healthcare proxy or or your durable power of attorney for healthcare. These are official designations that give that person decision-making capacity on your behalf. So each of us, when we do our advanced directives, we need to name someone, this proxy, this agent, who we are deputizing to speak for us when we can't speak for ourselves anymore. So it's a big job. And if no one ever, if someone hasn't done their paperwork and name that person, it generally defaults to next of kin. And each state has their own laws about what constitutes next of kin. This gets important, for example, with same-sex marriages where maybe they're not recognized or, or if it's, you know, that was historically a big problem. This person isn't considered kin, even though they've been partners for many, many years, et cetera. So anyway, there are a lot of policy and law has something to say about all this stuff, as well as sort of. Cultural habits. So, but now once we are in the zone of you are you are a caregiver, you are a loved one, you are a friend, and you are being tasked to make these kinds of decisions, make treatment decisions for someone. The thing to remember is your job is not it really takes a kind of a mental and emotional clarity. Again, the job here is to act on behalf of this person. So sometimes what I want for my family members may be different from what they want for themselves. Right. And this is really important distinction, and they can get really muddy given all the emotions swirling around and all the, you know. So try to just remember that that is your role. I'm here to act on mom or whoever's behalf. What would she want if she could tell us? And this is why it's so important. If we can have these conversations, they're resisted at every turn, as you and I know. But if we can have these conversations, it's such a blessing to our loved ones, so they don't have to guess what we might want or need. And then they're deputized to do act to do your bidding, and that feels good to advocate for someone. If I know what they want, when I don't know what they want, it gets very scary. And then am I, you know, am I projecting wishes that they might not have, et cetera? So. Remember, the job is to put yourself in that person's shoes and act on their behalf as they would want you to. So um, that's that's that that's an answer to your question. We can dig a little deeper, but knowing is so. Does that an, does that answer? Your
1: question it yet? it does. I think the emphasis on on behalf of that person, um, mm-hmm. which may not be what you would choose for yourself, um, and it just underlines how important. Those other conversations that we've talked exactly. about have been, and setting it down in writing so that those wishes are protected. Working um, on the the legal documents that accompany all the verbal mm-hmm. conversations that
2: are that are taking mm-hmm. place. Um, Can I say something right there, Natalie? Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind? Because I, I just want so- folks to understand something here, sort of a a big big picture that can help clarify what you feel when you bump up against the medical system. Just, I, I think it, to what we all have to understand is things have shifted. The days of Marcus Wellby, of us knowing our doctor for decades and them knowing, uh, us knowing them and them knowing us, they knowing us, whatever the right grammar is there, uh, those days are largely gone. Even if you've had the same doctor for many years, the jobs have shifted. Everything is sort of chopped up and fragmented. And there, it's very rare to have someone within the medical system who knows you super well and is holding the court for you and is acting on your behalf. And given that sort of fragmentation in the healthcare system, the healthcare system, the medical system does generally mean well, but it has these default default settings. Like you know, you're oh, you're gonna unless you say it otherwise, you're gonna end up in an ICU. You know, if you're seriously ill, you're gonna end up intubated and all these other things by default that may not be exact, what's appropriate for you or what you would have wanted. And if your doctor knew you well, they would know that. But the healthcare system has changed to the point where you can't count on that. So you need to state your wishes. You can't rely on the beneficence of the medical system to carry you through. It, you will end up on default settings that you may not want to be. So I just need to state that because I think we all want to believe that doctors have our best interest at heart, and they do but the system is such that you can't necessarily act on those or even know as fragmented things, as, as fragmented as things have become. Does that make sense? It's a really important distinction.
1: Yeah, it does. It does. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Um, I want to take a moment uh, to take a half step back, and maybe be a little bit more philosophical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've talked about the difference between treating pain and treating suffering and that they're they're not the same thing. Can you take a few moments to talk about how they're different in your view and how that difference informs your practice?
2: Yeah, so suffering's a big word, I and mean, it means I have really, I've never met anyone who hasn't suffered. We all know, we have some sense of what that word means. Um, there are a lot of people who have written about it and try to define it in various ways. Uh, the woman who invented sort of modern hospice movement, Cicely Saunders, she used the phrase total pain and is, which is sort of what most of us in the field now mean by suffering, which is that pain is, pain is a physical stimulus. You touch a stove, it hurts. You know, it's, it's just suffering is the meaning and the emotion, uh, that we wrap around that sensation, um. So suffering is a much more total experience, a total pain, a total experience involves spiritual, psychosocial, emotional components. So how we suffer has a lot to do with how we see ourselves in the world, how we see the world, how we're made up. So two people might have the same pain stimulus, the same kind of pain, but those two people might respond to it very differently. Some folks, yeah, why, you know, there's, they they have chronic pain, but they've made peace with it, and they roped it into their reality. And those guys aren't really suffering. They may have pain, but they're not suffering. They're not sort of going, "Why me? What is what does this mean?" Whereas another person whose worldview does not can't just can't accommodate this pain, the way they see themselves, this pain is an is a is a obnoxious like foreign invader. Well, that person's at odds with themselves, at odds with their reality, and they're bucking against it. And that person is suffering. So for me, the word suffering means, the way I put it is, suffering is a gap or a a wedge that opens up inside of us between the reality that we have and the reality that we wish for. So if we're constantly wishing for something we don't have, we're going to suffer. Nixon, it's realistic, and I do it all the time, but that's a kind of suffering um you're at odds with yourself you're at odds with your reality does that register with you natalie in your yeah own life? it
1: does it does absolutely yeah. um i've i've seen it and i've felt it i know exactly what you're talking about
2: um so, and the go- reason sorry yeah, what i was going to say reason that distinction's important like pain medicine If you've got some pain well throw some you know ibuprofen or whatever there's medication we can treat pain to to a large degree to some degree um, but treating suffering is it begs a very different. Then I need to, if I'm going to treat your suffering, I need to really know you, Natalie. I need to know how you think, what makes you tick, uh, and that may mean conversations with me, may mean conversations with a chaplain, that may mean uh, social worker needs to get involved because things at home are so rocky. Whatever else, that's why palliative care is inherently a team sport because how we approach you will 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 differ if you're suffering versus just having pain.
1: So let's let's go back to palliative care then for um for a bit. Um as we get close to the end of this segment, when should um a conversation about bringing in palliative care um take place when you get this Mm -hmm. diagnosis Um, will your care team bring it up to you or is it something typically that the patient says could palliative care help me like um, when does that start
2: to happen when should it when should it happen Mm -hmm. and what actually tends to happen in the real world Great. So I would like to say that it should that we should all at the moment of diagnosis that you have a sense that there's a palliative care team in this in in the clinic or the hospital where you are. I would ask, you know, I would like to I would like to I would like to believe that it comes up immediately so you know what your resources are. Even if you're not suffering at that point, if you if you if it's coming for you, if some suffering's coming for you, well then you know where to turn. So ideally, we're introduced to palliative care the moment we're introduced to an illness. Um, It's not how it generally plays out. For one, there's so much misunderstanding about what palliative care means and the, the confusion around palliative care versus hospice. So there are a lot of clinicians in the world who still have it in their mind that palliative care is really just relevant if you're dying. And like you and I said at the beginning of this conversation, that is just not true palliative care is relevant anytime along the spectrum of illness where you're suffering more than you need to. So, but most people just for some reason don't commit that distinction to memory. So, doctors are often the worst. They will you might bring up palliative care, and they may say to you, "Well, I, you're not ready for of care yet," meaning you're not dying anytime soon, which is a real shame because then you're suffering in ways you don't need to. You're being denied a service that could be really helpful to you. So, This is So the advice to your listeners would be, you guys, yes, wouldn't it be great if the medical system tended to all these things and were clear, et cetera? Well, that would be great, but it's not the reality much of the time. So you ask, I would love you, when patients ask about palliative care, caregivers ask about it, that takes the guesswork out of the doctor's hands and say, uh, that just makes it super clear. So I'd ask for about the palliative care services in your system. Uh, early as possible, just so you know.
1: And and who do you ask? Are you talking to your doctor? Or are you asking to speak to a social worker or um, a care
2: team any, coordinator? Any or of all of the above. You can simply, so palliative care programs tend to be endemic to the health system in which you're working and which you're a patient. Uh, you may be have access to palliative care outside of that health system, but you should be able to ask the doctor, the social work, the nurse. Uh, you should be able to ask any of the clinicians you bump up against, do you guys have a palliative care program here or how might I qualify if I ever need them? How does it work? You know, that's a really great question. And any of the providers on the team should, should be able to answer that question.
1: Okay, great. So we're up to our next break. Um, <laughs> we're going to make it super fast. Nobody should tune out because we still have so much to learn from you. This is frankly speaking about cancer. This episode is brought to you by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and we're going to be right back in just a quick moment.
4: Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support. From cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer.
2: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli and we have been having an incredible conversation today with Dr. B.J. Miller about making treatment decisions when you or your loved one has been diagnosed with an advanced cancer. We are in our last segment. I feel the clock ticking against me, and I just want to cram these uh, few minutes full of really great information and things for us to think about. Um, before the break, we were talking about palliative care and how that can contribute to the oncology care that um, a, an individual is receiving. A person's cancer care team has like a lot of team members, and all of them are really important. A palliative care team is going to come as well with a lot of different um, specialists. So an individual is now surrounded by a whole lot of people trying to contribute to their care. Do you have any, like, is there a go-to person? And do you have Mm -hmm. any suggestions about just how to work with so many different people? Um, And it might be the patient, it might be the caregiver, also coordinating all of that care that's coming in. Mm -hmm.
2: Oh, yeah. Boy, it gets complicated, doesn't it, real fast. Um, so one thing to note is any true hospice or palliative care team, again, they're two sides of the same coin. The, at minimum, there's a doctor, a nurse, social worker, and chaplain, and any palliative care team, the qualified team. So it is, this is a team endeavor. Like we we're saying, suffering is complicated stuff. No one discipline has a lock on what that means. So then you get these, so you get this team. Um, But as you're saying, sometimes there's just too many people. Uh, It's just confusing. Uh, You just don't know who's doing what. Um, So, one is back to ask. When, like, if you're in the hospital, someone comes to your room, you know, never be afraid to say, I'm sorry, who are you again? Which team are you with? And tell me how best to use you. You know, you can put that back on them and coach you on how to put them to best use. Ask, ask, ask. Okay. So, that's one thing. Second thing I would say is, especially in a hospital setting, sometimes I think we assume the doctor knows the most. The doctor is atop top of some pile, and we assume it there. So sometimes I hear people insisting on talking to the doctor. But in fact, the truth is, oftentimes a nurse or even a, like a med student might know more about your situation, just the way it plays out in a hospital. So I would point you to, it's very helpful to have a go-to person. Um, so with all these characters around who, with whom do you feel the most, um, connected? And that could be just about, I wouldn't, i irrespective of their discipline, whether they're a nurse or blah, blah, blah. It's more personal. Like who, who really seems to get you, who holds the eye contact with you and who listens to you? I would really, if, if when, when in doubt, find that one person and try your best to work through them. And you can even say, Hey, I feel most connected to you. Do you mind if I, if we check in? I'm getting confused by all these team members. Can we check in routinely? Can you be my point person? Um, you might just even ask that question. And again, it's irrespective of their discipline. Sometimes it's the med student who's the best advocate in the hospital.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So thank you for sharing that, um, that tip. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to touch on hospice care for a moment with you because my understanding is that a lot of times people... Um, start connecting with hospice care services later than they could have? Mm-hmm. Um, you talked earlier about six months, maybe one year, maybe, but when, when should a conversation about hospice actually begin? Um, and, you know, what are some things to consider when having those conversations?
2: So another sort of theme across our conversation is it's never soon t- too soon to ask. So, you know, it's great to make decisions when you're not in distress and things aren't falling apart. So early in the course, you might just like your coach, You even before you may need their services, asking about palliative care. I would similarly ask about hospice, um, you know, asking social worker, doctors, case managers. Hey, in, you know, in our town here, who's a good hospice provider? Someday I may want that, you know, so just start those conversations earlier. It can just be very helpful. Um, so that's one, que- one, one answer to your question. But more tactically than that, Natalie, think of hospice as it is, the, especially if you want to be home, bar none is the way to get the most services into your home. And the thing you got to understand is you're going to be to qualify for hospice. Again, someone has to say you have six months or less to live. Um, and this other detail, and this is thanks to the insurance Benefit that was created in the 1980s, the Medicare benefit around hospice, um, it it put this this need that you have to to go on to hospice. You have to give up uh, any curative intention of treating your cancer, and that's really a sticky point here because a lot of people want to keep treating even if they're within the six months or less to live window. So those two. So anytime, in other words, when you are suffering. When you feel done with treatments, either there aren't any more options for you or you don't want those options, that's when you should think about hospice. Um, And like you said earlier, most people wait way too long. Doctors don't bring it up. They're afraid to bring it up. People are afraid to look like quitters or people don't even know the situation they're dealing with. So they wait, wait, wait until they're really on death's door. And a lot of people elect hospice with a day or two left to live. Sometimes that's the right choice, but very often that just meant that they suffered longer than they needed to. So, again, bring up hospice early and often. Make it clear that you're interested in that. But specifically, when there are no more treatment options for you or you are not interested in those treatment options, think about hospice. Um,
1: I want to circle back to caregivers. And in my head, I see a line between what we were just talking about with the hospice and caregivers. Um, at the Cancer Support Community, we have a uh, online research survey called the Cancer Experience Registry, um, and it's a survey that helps enhance cancer care, improve healthcare policies, and ensure that support services better reflect the needs of people affected by cancer. It's by people who've been diagnosed or living with cancer for people who've been diagnosed and living with cancer. Mm. So in our 2020 report, 58% of participating caregivers reported not feeling prepared to care for the patient's emotional needs. And 68% of those participating caregivers did not feel prepared to handle caregiver stress. What advice or insights do you have um, about support specifically for caregivers?
2: So one is, like we said earlier in the conversation, and we should say again and again and again, your health, your well-being matters. I think we've all inherited this idea that whether we're professional caregivers, i.e. clinicians, or uh, family, you know, informal caregivers, family and friends, there we inherited, I think many of us, that it's a selfless act, You know, and that we um, were there for this other person. In some ways, that's true. In real important ways, that is true. But we need a more nuanced understanding of what that means. Human dynamics, this is a relationship. Therefore, it's an exchange. It's giving and receiving all the time. So, as caregivers, we have to first, let's just state that our well being is important. Not only for our own, for ourselves, but it affects the care we're able to provide. If we're feeling okay in our lives, we're going to provide better care. So these things feed on each other; they don't poach each other. Um, and remember that this is a relationship, and therefore it's a dynamic, and therefore it's a two way street. So really get that into your get that into your mind, into your spirit as, as, as quickly as you can. This should not be a sacrificial pursuit entirely. Good caregivers does the the mark of a good caregiver caregiver is not are they completely worn out and empty? Did they give everything that they had to this? That's not necessarily the currency of good caregiving.
1: Well, thank you so much for those thoughts. Um, I'm going to do this to you again. We are just about out of time. <laughs> um, before before we reach the end of today's episode, um, are there one or maybe two things that you really want to make sure that our listeners um, take away from the time that we spent together this last hour?
2: Well, let me say quickly, and uh, following on that last question is, increasingly, you, there are, there have not been many support systems for caregivers. Increasingly, that's changing. That's one of the reasons why we started Mental Health. So if you need support as a caregiver, reach out to Mental Health. I don't mean this as an advertisement, but we set ourselves up to do this work. So that's one just want to get that across. And there are other resources there for you. Now, to your other question here, Natalie, I think if there's a takeaway here, I think I just, there are many. (laughs) But right now, my favorite is, remember all these things, whether it's you and you with yourself, you with your family, you with doctors, these are relationships one way or another. And give that that sort of two-way street it's due. These are dynamic situations. They're relational situations. And lastly, and part and parcel of that, Uh, don't hand yourself over to anybody here. Participate in your own care. You know, this is, again, this is a team sport. It works best if we engage with each other. You don't just hand yourself over to your doctor and hope for the best. There's so many reasons why that generally doesn't work. So whatever your role is in this mix, participate. And I would give up the notion that you have no control, and I would give up the notion that you have total control. It's somewhere in between all the time. So that's my takeaway for now.
1: Thank you so, so very much for spending this time with us, for sharing your advice, your insights. Um, Just an incredible hour. I've learned so much. I firmly believe that our listeners have as well. Um, Again, thank you for being with us, Dr. Miller.
2: Such a pleasure, Natalie. Thank you.
1: So... um, We've come to the end of today's episode. Uh, I just want to mm-hmm. encourage folks, if you or a loved one has been diagnosed with advanced cancer, uh, the Cancer Support Community's website has some really great free resources that you can access to help you through this time. Just go to cancersupportcommunity.org slash decisions. Um, and as, um, as I mentioned earlier, CSC has a multitude of in-person, online and telephonic support. So please feel free to check out our whole host of free resources at org, or call our cancer support helpline at 1-888-793-9355. It's been my pleasure to spend this time with you today. Thank you for joining us at Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
0: You've been listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, Connect with the Cancer Support Community every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network and online at cancersupportcommunity.org.